The New Testament text is Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're beginning uh, a series of sermons, uh, or I am beginning a series of sermons on the gospel according to Mark. So who is this guy, Mark? John Mark. He's a man with two names. John, also known as Mark. John being a, a, a name that uh, characterizes uh, Jewish uh, uh, setting or his Jewish uh, heritage. Mark actually is a Roman name, Marcus. And uh, it says something, I think, about his uh, family uh, situation. Um, his mother was wealthy. It's uh, pretty evident that she had a large home in Jerusalem. Uh, we're introduced to her in Acts chapter 12. Recall the episode where Peter is released from prison and he goes to uh, a woman named Mary's house and there's a servant who can't believe it's actually, you know, Peter. And so she leaves him standing outside and goes in and tells everybody Peter's at the gate and no one believes them. Well, we're not talking about a small, say, you know, 500 square foot studio apartment. Uh, we're talking about a home with a gate and with some distance to travel between the front door and where everybody was hanging out. So, and by the way, this, this I, I think uh, also uh, makes sense because apparently another family member, Barnabas, uh, who by the way is John Mark's cousin, he's an older cousin, he's not hurting. Um, he sells a field in Jerusalem uh, and brings the proceeds and lays them at the apostles' feet. That's you know, characteristic of this particular guy, his name was Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, or actually that's his nickname. Um, so uh, John Mark is, is connected to, and uh, has some significance just for that reason, but unfortunately he got off to a bad start. Um, when the first missionary journey was conducted and Barnabas and Paul needed someone to come along and maybe carry the bags, they recruited John Mark to help out. And we see that in uh, chapter 13 of uh, Acts. But uh, we also learn that uh, not too long after that in Pamphylia, uh, John Mark gets homesick. I mean, it seems like he kind of seems like a mama's boy, doesn't he? I mean, he goes home to mama in Jerusalem and uh, lets down the crew. And Paul doesn't forget. When you get to chapter 15 of the book of Acts, 
and they're about ready to set up once again to visit all the churches they had, you know, established. Uh, Barnabas, Barnabas says, you know, like he would, hey, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, are you kidding me? That guy? He let us down. I mean, he just took off. We're not taking him again. Anyway, Barnabas, you know, stood up for his cousin, said, no, we should take him. And Paul said, if that's the way it's going to be, we got to go our separate ways. You know, I'm going to get a new protege, you know, to help carry my bags. And, you know, you can have him hang out with you. And they separate at that point. Now, I want you to know there's a happy ending. And we know there's a happy ending because in Colossians, uh, it, no, actually it's in uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, uh, we see the Apostle Paul say, hey, that guy, Mark, fetch him for me. He tells this to Timothy, his, his right-hand man, and he says, because he's very helpful to me in the ministry. Isn't it marvelous that you can have a happy ending or at least something to work with when you think about someone like a John Mark? But anyway, Mark is um, who wrote this gospel. And uh, we are at the beginning of the gospel. We see that in verse 1 uh, where we're told the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're at the beginning. Now, the word gospel is worth reflecting on. Uh, it's a translation of the Greek euangelion. Euangelion, it's a compound word in Greek. Uh, epsilon, upsilon, that's the prefix eu, which means good. You've come across it in your life, maybe didn't even realize it. Eulogies, like if you're at a funeral and you see on the order of service, time for the eulogies, well, that means it's time for somebody, some, some folks to get up and to say some good things, because it literally means good words. You, good, logi, words, eulogies. I've done a number of funerals, and I don't think some people get the point. <laughs> they don't necessarily share good things uh, all the time at uh, that point in the service. But uh, we're told that uh, this is good news, that uh, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. There's a lot more to, to, uh, to know when it comes to the gospel. Now, there's a tendency that we have, I think it's perhaps universal, but I think it's pronounced in, in America. We like to simplify and sort of boil things down uh, to kind of the... The, the shortest possible formulation we can get. There's actually a, a term, uh, kerygma, that uh, expresses this idea. So this sort of kernel, this sort of irreducible sort of thing that we have to keep in mind if we're going to proclaim the gospel. And I think that's really great. But uh, what can happen is we can oversimplify, and in the process of oversimplifying things, distort the gospel. Now, I remember years ago watching NFL football games, back when the rainbow wig guy was at every one of them. It was just amazing. He was just like, it was like, how, did, how could this guy be at 10 games on the same day? But it seemed like he was. Now, uh, if you're of a certain age, you know who I'm talking about. You're smiling. There are people out there with bewildered expressions right now. Who's the rainbow wig guy? Well, at these football games, uh, the rainbow wig guy would position himself behind the goalposts 
And whenever the extra point or the field goal was made, he would stand up and he had a sign that read, what? John 3.16. John 3.16. It was, and, and he was, you know, effective in, in, in getting the word out. But as important as John 3.16 is, it's not everything that can be said. Now, when we think about, say, how the church does its work in terms of evangelizing people, oftentimes you'll hear people express uh, the gospel promise in the, the, this way. You can have, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to know I believe in that, but that's not the whole story. There are many things that follow. There are the implications. The gospel is about a whole lot more than just a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe that sounds heretical, but it's the truth. And what we're talking about here is a pretty expansive uh, set of uh, realities that are expressed through the gospel, and there are implications for you and me. Now, have you ever thought about the fact that there are four gospels? I mean, you got Matthew, right? Mark, Luke, and John. Now, if you were to like go out on the street and say, what's your favorite gospel? Uh, I, I have a, a, a sense that Mark would come in last. You know, it's like the gospel that the pastor never gets to. You know, he'll preach through Matthew, he'll preach through Luke, he'll preach through John, and then he'll say, what do I need to go to Mark for? He doesn't say anything that the other ones didn't say. And there's a sense that it's sort of the Neglected gospel. Um, is that the right way to think about it, though? Another way to think about it is, uh, well, why do we need four? Can't we condense it? Can't we kind of harmonize them and create a single document? And in the process, you know, just make everybody's life simpler. No, no, I think that that's not really a good idea because there are reasons that we have the four gospels. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is that there's already one gospel. It's not as though um, we have four gospels in the sense that maybe some people take it. Because we are saved by a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the gospel. He's the gospel. Now, what we have are words that communicate the word. Remember the opening to John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God? Well, the Gospels, these four accounts of the Gospel, uh, are all pointing to the same person, Jesus Christ. But each of them gives us a bit of information in a, in a certain way that's helpful. And there have been a lot of uh, you know, um, theologians and exegetes who have reflected on the nature and sort of the characteristics of each of the Gospels. And uh, you might be familiar with the fact that the different Gospels um, are many times um, connected to the four living creatures that we see in Ezekiel chapter 1 and in the book of Revelation, I believe it's chapter 4. Are you familiar with the four living creatures? The four living creatures are angelic beings who uh, have different heads. Uh, one has the head of a man, another has the head of a lion, and uh, then there's the one with the head of an ox, and then 
one with the head of an eagle. And it was Irenaeus, I believe, who was the one who made the connection between the four Gospels and the four living creatures. Uh, Jerome followed up uh, on that, and uh, there have been a lot of, well, really marvelous things done with that imagery. Uh, the Book of Kells, familiar with the Book of Kells, it's one of the most uh, celebrated illuminated manuscripts of uh, the medieval world and came out of Ireland. Uh, but right there on the cover, you've got these different uh, creatures, and they correspond to the different books. So I'm going to tell you what they are, because there's actually some logic to it. Now, when we think about angelic beings, did you catch euangelion? News, the Greek word angel is derived from angelion. So there's a sense in which messages from God are carried by angelic creatures. So there's some connection here at that level. But each of these different uh, creatures are in the presence of God. The four creatures are there ministering to God and uh, carrying out his will. But the man, the man corresponds to the book of Matthew. The ox corresponds to Luke. The eagle corresponds to John, and the lion corresponds to Mark. Mark has also been known as the gospel of action. What we see in Mark is the king in action. And one of the ways that this is conveyed is a, a word that just keeps being used again and again, almost. I mean, if Mark had written for like your typical high school, you know, uh, English teacher, the English teacher would say, get out of the thesaurus and find some other words. Because the word immediately appears 40 times in the book of Mark. In fact, in the first chapter, we haven't come up to it yet, but in the first chapter, it occurs eight times. So this is uh, intended to convey that Christ is a kind of action hero. He's heroic. He's courageous. And what audience in antiquity do you think this would have appealed to? The Romans. It's been uh, surmised that when Mark wrote his gospel, he had Romans in mind. And by the way, he would know what Roman culture is like or was like. After all, his other name, Mark, is Roman. This is an interesting thing to reflect on. Go to the end of the book of uh, Romans. Not right now, but later on. And note when Paul says, my kinsmen, all the names that he gives for his kinsmen are Greek and Roman. We're talking about some sophisticated cosmopolitan people here. And that's what we see when it comes to, to Mark. He understood how to talk to his, his uh, audience. He was addressing Romans. Now, uh, when we look at uh, what follows that first verse, we're given a, uh, an introduction to somebody who's a, a real eccentric character. Let me, let me read uh, again about him, verses 2 through 7. First, uh, we have a quote from Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, John stood out in antiquity. I mean, you didn't have people wearing camel's hair shirts and eating things like this every day. Uh, what is it with this guy? There's something that we're supposed to note based on where he is, what he eats, and his wardrobe. These are kind of a code, you could say. One of the things I think that we can miss when we read the Old Testament, we read, say, about, well, Jeremiah or Ezekiel, is these are guys with some pretty funky behavior patterns. They do some things that are intended to, to get a message across. Now, let's just think about Jeremiah. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah uh, and, uh, in chapter 19, and he uh, gathers a bunch of guys together and then proclaims God's judgment. But before he does any of that, he's told, get a vessel, get a vessel. And then after he proclaims God's judgment, he takes that vessel and he just smashes it. He's making a point. The histrionics are intended to convey a message. God is going to destroy. His judgment is going to bring something to an end, just like this vessel. Think about Ezekiel laying on his side for days. He's actually kind of a live-action role-playing the siege of Jerusalem. He's LARPing the siege of Jerusalem by God's command. Now, I'm not talking about two or three days. I'm talking about like 190 days on his left side and 40 days on his right side. You know, like, this is weird stuff. It's meant to get some, a message across. And the message across is, yeah, you think I'm uncomfortable. You're going to be a whole lot less comfortable when God's judgment falls on the kingdom. And when we look at John, it's not just that you know he dressed oddly because he wanted to. It wasn't just that he couldn't afford anything else to eat, and that's why he ate locusts and wild honey. What is this all intended to convey to us? Where is he? He's in the wilderness. Who else spent time in the wilderness? And I'm not talking about the Lord, the children of Israel. Why? Why were they in the wilderness? Because they didn't believe God's promise. And because of that, they were punished for 40 years of wandering, living off the land like John. Now, when you think about locusts, if you're not you know, in the World Economic Forum, you don't think of that as like an ideal thing to eat. Right? Uh, it's more or less, why would you want to eat that? What do we associate with locusts in the Old Testament? Judgment. Plague. Okay. Now I think we're getting the drift here. What is being stated here is that you need to repent like the people of God in the old days need to repent. And where are we? We're back on the other side of the Jordan. We need to cross the Jordan again. This is a do-over. This is a message. You didn't get it right the first time. This is your next chance. 
repent. Your ancestors didn't repent, but you can repent. And all of this is intended to make the way clear for the coming of the Lord. Now, there's a beforeness to his message. This is all preparatory. And uh, it's stressed uh, right here in the passage uh, that is quoted from Isaiah. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Whose face? The Savior's face. Who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In other words, it's time to get ready. The Lord is coming. You need to prepare. Now, we're told uh, that, and this is from Matthew's Gospel, that there was no one greater uh, than John the Baptist. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse, uh, chapter, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. And he says, um, you know, of those born of women, there's not been, you know, none, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, not, um, you know, Samuel. He's, he's, the, he's the pinnacle. He is sort of like the culmination of the law and the prophets. You want to see somebody who embodies the message of the law and the prophets? That's your guy. And yet, Jesus says, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than that guy, John. Amazing. How could that be possible? Doesn't that imply that maybe you and I are greater than John the Baptist? How does that work? I don't feel like eating locusts and wild honey. That's the last thing I want to do. Well. What were the purposes that were served by the law and the prophets? We're told by Christ that the law and the prophets were all about him. Remember, you know, the road to Emmaus, following the resurrection, the Lord meets a couple of despondent disciples on the road, and they get into a conversation, they don't recognize him. But, you know, they say, we thought this guy was the holy man, you know, the holy one of Israel, and now he's dead, and we need to get a you know, a report from, you know, some crazy gals in our group that he was alive, but, you know, can you believe that kind of thing? And then what do you have? Is you have the Lord say, you morons. That's actually what he says, you morons. The word translated fools in Luke chapter 24, beginning of verse 25, is morons. You morons. Don't you understand anything? Everything has been about me. All the law and the prophets have been, you know, referring to me. And then he takes them through the entire body of Scripture and makes that clear to them. And then uh, we're told by the Apostle Paul that the, that the law was a kind of guardian, a kind of schoolmaster that was intended to prepare and preserve the inheritance that the children, the rightful heirs, were to receive. Go back and look at Galatians chapters uh, 3 and 4 and you'll see what I'm getting at. So what you have with the law is something that is intended to serve the Lord and serve us. And we're told at the end of this address or at the end of this statement that as, you know, as great as I am, as, or as important as you think I am, I should say, um, 
there's someone coming along after me who's mightier than I am. And I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes. And the gospel is about him. Now we're told there in verse 8 that he will do something that John couldn't do. John baptized with water, but the one who is coming would baptize with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Have you noticed there's something wrong with the human race? Turn on the television. Turn on the internet. Look at yourself. There's something wrong with the human race. Think about it this way. Um, we find the will of our Creator repellent. The one who gave us the capacity to enjoy the world that we live in, who granted to each one of us the gifts that we enjoy, and even the appetites that we sometimes give ourselves over to, that God, our Creator, we'd rather not uh, have Him come around and tell us what to do. We'd rather run our own show, thank you very much. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with human beings. How, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because there's something wrong with us. This has been one of the things that philosophers, by the way, have wondered about for like ever. And when it comes to the subject of, you know, moral uprightness, there are basically two schools of thought. Uh, one school that's uh, expressed uh, through the thinking of Immanuel Kant and the other through the thinking of Aristotle. Let me summarize them for you not because they're going to be all that helpful in terms of helping you to be what you need to be, but so that you can see that we've tried everything. So with, with Kant, the ontological ethics is the idea that we just should do our duty whether we like it or not. We just should do our duty whether we like it or not. In fact, the most praiseworthy person is the person who overcomes all of the things that he doesn't want to do in order to do the right thing. That's a really praiseworthy person. Now, Aristotle, he's uh, known for something called virtue ethics, and he said, you know, wouldn't it be better if we actually wanted to do the right thing? But since we don't, we need to train ourselves to want the right thing, and what we want is to acquire a second nature. And we acquire that second nature through habituation. We learn how to do things because we just force ourselves to do them, and after a while, hopefully, it's an acquired taste. We kind of like it, maybe after we've done it enough, and it becomes a kind of second nature, something we don't even have to think about, but just to kind of do. Well, you know what? We don't need a second nature. We don't need to work harder. We need a new nature. We need to be recreated in the image of our Savior. And how does that happen? You know, that's a great question because you can't get there from here. Back east, down east Maine, you know down east Maine, right? And you know, Sally, it's, it's, you know, there's a joke. You know, people in down east Maine, they're just sort of ornery. And if they don't want to help you, they just don't. So there's this joke about, you know, a traveler who comes through, I don't know, Kittery or someplace in the south of Maine. It's in the south. Uh, it's the southeast corner, that's down east. And someone asks him for directions, and he says, Well, you know, 
You could go here. No, that won't work. You could go this way. But no, that won't work. You know what? You just can't get there from here. Goodbye. <laughs> and really, that's the situation we find ourselves in. In our own strength, they can't get there from here. We need help. We need help from above. We need a Savior who changes us, renews us, and makes us into something we can't bring about in our own strength. And that's what Christ's baptism is pointing at. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a baptism into God. You know, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God, right? So when you're baptized into the Holy Spirit, you're baptized into the very person of God, a very person of God, and you participate in His nature from that point on. It doesn't mean that everything changes all at once, although some things do change all at once. You know, that's the other question. Does it happen all at once or a little bit at a time? The answer is both. Now, eventually, when we're glorified, it'll be accomplished. But in the course of our lives, there is what we refer to as initial sanctification, where our hearts are transformed and we end up actually wanting what God wants for us. That's regeneration, right? We end up wanting what God wants for us. I can remember the transformation in my own life. I went from being like, I don't want anything to do with that, to I can't get enough. And was it because I, you know, made a resolution on New Year's Eve? No. It's because God's Spirit made the change happen in my life. I was brought into the very life of God, and I was participating in that life. And it happens a little bit at a time, because over the course of your lives, our lives, we are transformed on a day-to-day -day basis as God continues to work in us. So it's instantaneous, it's gradual, but it's never complete in this life. But we can grow in grace. And it can enjoy God in ever greater measure over the course of our lives. And we can become more and more repelled by sin over the course of our lives. And that's really what we ought to do. Because that's the promised land. Getting back to my note or my, the statement I made about being in the wilderness. What happened the first time when the children of Israel came to the Jordan? The waters parted, right? And they entered into the promised land. Now they're passing through the Jordan once again. They're repenting. They're starting over. It's like a reset. We're going to get it right this time. But even that was pointing to something more significant, more ambitious, better news, good news, the work of God in our lives and hearts. Let me take you to um, Galatians and uh, help you to see something that maybe you've missed. When, it, when we think about the sort of the overarching sort of sort of arc of the story when it comes to the Bible, the end of chapter three, or about the middle of chapter three, in verse fifteen and sixteen, uh, Paul is talking about the promises God made to Abraham, and here's what he says: Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ is the child of promise. And then when we are in him, everything that he 
deserves, we enjoy by grace. We are in him. We are baptized into Christ. And he is the end of the story. He is the promised land. He's what it's all about. Even the land of promise was intended to keep you thinking or looking forward to the real promised land, being in the presence of God, enjoying his will, glorifying him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. It's not something we could have cooked up for ourselves, that's for sure. You look through the history of the world and its literature, and even though there are intimations and little hints or things that seem to resemble it in a superficial way, there's nothing like it. Help us, Lord, to delight in the truth of the gospel and to enjoy its benefits. In Christ's name, amen.